are listening to Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I am here with my co-host Nick Capodice and my dear, dear friend Justine Paradise. Hello, Nick. Hello, Justine. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hello. Hello. Uh, Justine, for those of you who don't know, is also a producer and so many other things in a podcast called Outside In, and we thank her very much for being here. Both of you have started a journey with me, and we are going to complete that journey in this part two of our, I suppose, rather unusual two-part series here on Civics 101, uh, because we're talking about dolls. Yeah, I mean, I think I get it at this point, Hannah, but uh, yeah, you sure are. Specifically, American Girl dolls. And you can get the full download of American Girl's early history, and I warmly recommend you do, because without it, this will not make a lot of sense in part one of this two-parter. But here in part two, we're going to ask some questions about what it actually means to craft the American Girl narrative. What is an American Girl? And how does a company that makes toys also craft that narrative responsibly? I have had limited conversations with people inside the brand and have done a lot of research on the brand. So I can't say if everybody is aware of that social responsibility. But I can say that, you know, even from the very beginning, I think there's some really interesting historic um, conversations about the brand's responsibility and that tension around profit. This is Emily Zoslow, author of Playing with America's Doll, a cultural analysis of the American Girl Collection. I was really interested then in the historical dolls and the stories that the brand was telling about American Girl. Because if you have a brand that claims to represent American Girl and to be American Girl, right, that kind of leads one to ask two really important questions. How does the brand define American and how does the brand define girl? So I was kind of interested in both of those things. So Emily has researched The Pleasant Company and American Girl heavily And she encountered this one story in particular about this tension around profit, right? And it comes back to Addie Walker. Once again. They were coming up with the story for Addie, who's the girl who was enslaved and she and her mother escaped. Um, And there were a lot of conversations, you know, that I've been, um, that I've learned about, a lot of conversations revolving how to tell this story and how to make sure that the doll was purchased, right? And one of, um, you know, one of the things that Pleasant Roland is known to have said is that the doll needs to be cute, right? Girls need to want to play with this doll, to hold this doll, to love this doll. And if she's not cute, right? If she's looks as if she has just escaped from slavery and she looks emaciated and she looks brutalized little girls and their mothers are not going to want to buy her right which is there's a tension there right you have to get her and 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 not only are not going to want to buy her but are not going to want to necessarily read the stories that this you know doll that's not attractive in theory because she's ill and she's you know been well she's not ill but you know she's been brutalized 
would look like. Addie the doll is beautiful and smiling and shows no sign of nutritional deficiency or anything else that would result from an enslaved life. You know, there were definitely people that, you know, um, who left the company at that time or who two of the illustrators who were illustrating Addie uh, resigned. They said they could not depict her as, you know, the way that that Pleasant Roland wanted her depicted. Does Emily have any idea as to why the Pleasant Company made the decision to make Addie their first black doll, a character who's born into enslavement? The lore is that Pleasant Roland wanted to create, had always envisioned that she had to create and and must create an African-American doll if she was telling the story of the American girlhood experience. Um, And she conferred with an advisory board she had a she had an advisory board as well as her historians that were on staff and the decision was made um that in order to tell any story of african-american girlhood the story of slavery must be told first it had to be incorporated and not telling it would be sanitizing history but then of course there were definitely historians, parents, scholars who were very upset that that was the story, that why does the first story have to be a story of enslavement? Pleasant determined that if her company was going to introduce a black historical doll, that doll had to represent the most horrifying, most subjugating of historical treatment of black people in the United States, or else they would be sanitizing history. That was her idea, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Even though right before Addie came out in Felicity's book, uh, Enslaved Men Are Called Servants, and then in the Addie books themselves, Addie's story is absolutely not sanitized. Right. And then many parents are concerned about when they introduce Addie's story to their children because it is it does depict a horrible condition for Addie. It does depict the brutality of enslavement. And so there was a very mixed response to it when it came out in 1993. Yeah. Can I ask something real quick? That's pretty much uh, why you're here, Nick. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Please. Okay. Emily's describing a marketing decision to make Addie the doll appealing and cute and not really reflective of a brutal life. And then it sounds like she's describing another kind of decision. Like, I don't know if you'd call it a moral one or an educational one or whatever, but it's the decision to choose a brutal period of history and tell the truth about how a young black girl is treated during that period. Now, you both had some dolls. Mm-hmm. You both had some dolls, and you both had the books. So were they, like, one and the same to you? Like, Hannah, is Kirsten here, when you play with her, landlocked and speaking stilted English? So for me, n- no, no. Oh, wow. <laughs> not really, actually. Like, she doesn't even have, like, a Swedish accent? Yeah, no, not for me either. No. They're totally separate. They're totally Totally the doll in the story. Separate. Like Kirsten was my I don't even I didn't even necessarily like call her Kirsten. I might have <gasps> given her another name in play. Oh, wow. Um she would have played various people, you know, and we like lived in the woods together. But when you read the books, it was the story of her. I know. It was the story of a Swedish immigrant. Totally. So the books and the doll were like It's kind of separate. That's that's funny psychologically. Wow. I want that to be a whole other... I want to explore that. <laughs> really. Uh, yeah, so no, there were the books and there were the dolls and they were kind of separate. Mm-hmm. There's a real divide between what the stories teach and what the dolls teach, right? And they're all part of the brand. They 
definitely can be separated from one another and often are because children take out the books from the library, especially when the dolls being, you know, very expensive and inaccessible because the dolls cost $115. Not every child can afford to, you know, or not every parent can afford to buy a child, a child, the doll. So many children read the American Girl books who don't have dolls. And likewise, there are many girls who play with American Girl dolls who could care less about the stories that are attached to them. Okay, hold on again here. $115 (laughs) for a doll in the 1980s. I know, but just to be fair, like, look at the dolls. (laughs) Um, Okay, a few things here. The dolls in the 80s, they started at just under $70, but like a doll in the 80s for just under $70. by the time Justine and I were receiving them, they were probably closer to about $100. They were expensive. Yeah. Yeah. And then there were the accessories. The oh, accessories. Oh, the accessories. Uh, bedroom sets with real wooden, like, Felicity had a four-poster bed and a real metal bed warmer. And there were school desks. Steamer trunks, <sighs> doll prams for your doll's doll, <gasps> wash basins. Yeah. Uh, I remember Molly's birthday party set was like... I would salivate over how <laughs> just amazing it was. Yearning, the yearning. Samantha's wicker table and her chairs and her ice cream and petite fours. Oh my god! Felicity had a, a horse. Oh yeah, <laughs> I wanted that horse so bad. And eventually, they introduced modern accessories. Yeah, there was an apres ski set. <laughs> I didn't know what apres meant, um, but this ski set came with a cast and crutches and leggings and a like cute yellow parka and then you could also get a real doll sized inflatable snow tube. My god. So basically if you were investing in American Girl dolls and their branded accessories, it could cost you literally thousands of dollars. Um most girls I knew growing up made do with like off-brand American Girl size stuff or they made the doll clothes themselves. But then Nick, the girls who actually had like all of the good stuff, the stuff. If, if a girl had Felicity's entire Set like the cultural capital. Yeah. Of you want to go to their house. You want to go to their house. They have everything. So this seems to me to have absolutely nothing whatsoever <laughs> to do with history. Like, so uh, I don't mean to sound so mad, but uh, even if all these objects are in the books, you're really just talking about pretty stuff for pretty dolls. Yeah. Ad- admittedly, super high quality, like wooden <laughs> stuff. But yeah, uh, pretty stuff for pretty dolls. Um, These were not objects for everybody. So it's an educational toy by telling stories from American history. But also, if you want to play with the toy part of it, that's going to cost you. I'm just reflecting that I I got all the books from the library, Hmm. but I got the dolls. You know, they bought the dolls. It's interesting. Hmm. Um, We do have to say, though, Mattel bought The Pleasant Company in 1998 for $800 million. Wow. And now American Girl looks so different, and that's a whole other thing. Like, there is a giant nearly $600 dollhouse. There's Harry Potter-branded stuff for the dolls. There's a Disney princess collection. It is a far cry from the company of the past in many ways. But the American Girl brand has always been just that, a brand. And a brand that was and is very costly. Absolutely true. And a big part of that calculation of cost is the work that actually goes into each and every one of these historical dolls. So I spoke to someone who knows what's what when it comes to developing an American girl and her story. We've got that after the break. But before the break, 
Civics 101 is a listener-supported show. And a couple times a year, Hannah and I come on and ask you to support the show with a donation. And sometimes we have something to give in return. And right now we have possibly the single best gift we've ever had on our show, the Civics 101 baseball hat. If you give as a sustainer at the $5 a month level, you too can have this beautiful black Civics 101 cap at your disposal. Regardless of how much you give to our show, please know that it means the absolute world to all of us here. All right, thanks. We're back. We're talking American Girl dolls here on Civics 101 and what actually goes into these things that somehow feel more like the sum of their parts to the likes of people like me and Justine Paradise. And there is one thing, Justine, if I may, I feel like this is what you and I were wrestling with, that this company does retain. It's something that has been there since the very beginning. It's the reason why we're bothering to talk about toys on an episode of Civics 101. And that is the educational part, the historical part Mm -hmm. of this company. When American Girl makes a doll set in an era of American history, the truth is, and like has always been, they do it with some serious academic, historical, intellectual rigor. So we've been talking a lot about Addie. And Justine and I actually spoke to someone who helped Addie come to life. This is Spencer Crew. Uh, my name is Spencer Crew. I am a I work at George Mason University. I'm the Clarence J. Robinson Professor of History there. He teaches family history, like the study thereof, hmm. abolition and the Underground Railroad, and he teaches museums. Um, <laughs> he also works at the Smithsonian American History Museum for 20 years. And he was a member of the advisory board who contributed to the creation of Addy back in the early 90s. What I found most interesting, what we've learned, is that the Addy doll wasn't just bought by African-American girls. There were white bride and girls who were captivated by her and bought it as well, which is good. And I think it was a reinforcement of the idea that these dolls can be used by a wide variety of people. And probably it was what encouraged... uh, and others to to the other dolls and from the other ethnicities as well. Other ethnicities? Josefina Montoya. She came out in 1997. She's a Mexican girl, although she came from Spain, her family, living near Santa Fe shortly after Mexico gained independence from Spain. Kaya, a Nez Perce girl living in what would become the state of Oregon, but before permanent settlement. Um, But there, you know, we have to also say there were a lot of white dolls still. Mm -hmm. You know, like mostly white dolls, blonde Mm. white dolls actually... I don't know if they're the majority, but there are a lot of Kit. blonde white dolls. Yeah. Um, but every doll does have an advisory board, every character. Mm-hmm. And Spencer was approached when the company was thinking about Addie. We were approached by the then owner of the American doll, Pleasant Rowland, who was a wonderful woman and a very persuasive woman. And I think her passion and her belief and doing things in an accurate, appropriate way also drew me into it. Uh, because it was clear she really wanted to make sure this was done right. right. So it sounds like Spencer was on board with the way the company was approaching the development of Addie. Yes, I think that we wouldn't have stayed had we not believed that she was committed, but also was going to listen to what we had to say. And that came across very clearly. I mean, what she really brought very strongly was her sense of how to create a product that was um, appropriate, authentic, but also um, 
would be saleable that people would want to buy because there's no point creating something that no one buys. And she had a nice combination of those pieces of knowledge that I think made all of us feel comfortable and excited about what we were doing. This is a point that I feel like everyone we spoke to echoed in one way or another. There's the strange dichotomy that that the Addie doll doesn't look like she's been through something horrible. But then there's this aspect that Spencer's talking about is that if you want people to engage with what's ultimately a product, even if it's a historical educational product, you want people to want it. Yeah. Which is something actually that Spencer is super familiar with after a long career in museums. I thought that was so interesting that, you know, he is teaching history through storytelling and he understands that when you're doing that through a museum, Nick, this is something you're familiar with. There is a degree to which you have to draw people in, right? Like you want things to like latch onto them. Um, And Spencer talked a lot about striking the balance between historical truth and the story and product that keeps people engaged. Uh, we had the chance to offer commentary on the book. I mean, that's, that was part of the, the word. It wasn't just the doll. It was also the storyline. That was the balance to make sure you didn't sugarcoat their experiences, but you also presented it in a way that was accessible and that uh, people would engage with it. I mean, it's, the same, say, it's a similar kind of issue you have in museums when you're doing these kinds of stories. Uh, you need to find the uh, balance so that you can present the reality of it but in a way that people will engage with it. Because if they don't read it, if they don't engage with it, you've not accomplished anything. So that's what we were looking for, is that balancing point where you have the real story, but also a way that people are drawn to it and then empathize with it. We had a long conversation about her hair and what her hair would look like and how it would feel. And that was uh, really important, that it, it not be just a doll that has, you know, the regular straight hair, but just a girl who has curly hair. So we really wanted to make sure that that was right. And I think the other part of it was, as you said earlier, Hannah, that we wanted to make sure that we conveyed the difficulties that her family faced as enslaved people. But the other part of it was not to show them just as victims, to show them as individuals who were worth empathy, but also who desired to be free, who didn't enjoy being enslaved. And the fact we had her escaping and the family escaping sort of helped to underline that. You want them to have a sense of this, the history and the reality of it. I really got the sense from Spencer that this balance was about highlighting the fact that, yeah, Addie is born into enslavement and that's essential to her story that's going to shape her for her whole life. But also she's independent. She's smart. She was an active leader in the life she and her mother created in Philadelphia. She's just a, you know, a little girl. Like she has friends. She has, you know, little um competitions and jealousies with people that have nothing to do with her race at all. You know, it's just being a kid. I think there's also this theme that happens throughout her story, and that is one of self-determination. I think about this one moment later in her series where, um, you know, they're talking about, like, oh, so all the girls have a birthday book. And so in Addie's birthday book, it's, when is your birthday? Enslaved people often did not know, uh, I, we learn in these books, because this is another form of dehumanization. But Addie's encouraged, um, I think by an older woman in the book, to pick her own birthday. Like, pick your own. Mm-hmm. And she picks April 9th, which is the end of the Civil War. So, self-determination. Yeah, you know, um, we of course reached out to the American Girl reps at Mattel for this episode. And they were not able to give an interview, but they did provide a statement. And uh, I didn't wow. feel like that statement would have made a lot of sense at the top of the episode before we talked a lot about this. But I feel like it might now... 
because it does get at this. Uh, they said, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to I'm going to share with you some chunks of it because it is sort of re- reflective of this. Um, they say American Girl has always focused on helping girls grow up with the courage, confidence and strength of character as a brand rooted in story. For nearly four decades, each of our heroines has helped to create a sense of connection and community among our fans. Interesting that they use the term heroines. You know, you don't often, I think, necessarily and fans hear that. And fans, yeah, I know. Uh, and then they say, you know, American Girl has shown unwavering commitment to thoughtfully researching and creating historically accurate and culturally authentic stories and products. Um, they, you know, they say ne- from nearly 20 different historical characters from more than 15 eras, representing a range of cultures, races and ethnicities. Uh, and and then the last part they say is, you know, whether we're developing a modern day or historical character, our goal is to provide engaging, culturally relevant stories and authentically detailed dolls and accessories that spark imaginations and help girls become the strong, compassionate and resilient women of tomorrow. Uh, I feel like no matter what, we are talking about a money-making brand within a huge toy corporation. Just to be clear, in case it wasn't obvious, we know we're talking about a premium commodity, the price point of which makes it prohibitive to many, many kids out there. Uh, And the company does not say our goal is to make a product that anybody and everybody can have. So let me bring in Molly Rosner again for just a moment here. This is Molly Rosner. You met her in our first episode. The American Girl Company has managed to walk this incredibly fine line between consumer brand and nonprofit educational um, entity. And in that way, it kind of evades scrutiny on both ends. Um, American Girl literally creates curricula for schools. But if you look at the, that curricula, sure, there's there's lessons about historical periods, about food rationing, or about labor practices in the past. You can't argue with that. But if you really read the lessons, they reference the books, they reference the merchandise, and you have a better understanding and access to that history if you're familiar with the, the dolls themselves and the brand. So... While under the guise of inclusivity, they're really still bringing in new consumers or making people who cannot be the, that consumer feel less connected to that history. Um, there are places that are educational and profit. It doesn't mean they're, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but this is like a very special case of, well, I would say in the past, it was very much, I'm not trying to get every consumer. I'm not trying to have every girl in the United States have one of these dolls, but I want every girl in the United States to want one of these dolls. And parents might feel justified to pay for that price tag because of that educational idea. Honestly, see, I hear that and I feel a little queasy. Commodifying education or like leveraging the education part of something to make the commodity itself shine, that just feels not good or not as good as I want an educational thing to feel, I guess. Coming from a public education dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, like, welcome to America, oh. though, right? This is a place where education is ostensibly for all. We've got the whole public school system, but also education is very expensive. Yeah. And then, Nick, 
Yeah. We regularly tell people what we do here at Civics 101 is free. Isn't that bonkers? Like you heard it right, folks. Free. Um, and Bali talked a little bit more about this, that, uh, you know, something making money does not simultaneously make it something we must write off. It's like, does education need to look a specific way, uh, like, just because it, it's getting sold? Does it? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think that it's it's not so cut and dry, so black and white that American Girl or consumerism when it comes to history is all bad or all good. There's lessons to take from it. And then there's a kind of lesson to take from how you interact with these stories. So, so it can become really dangerous when we think about censoring or banning things for children because we assume as adults that we know better and we assume there's some insidious idea behind something that may just be foreign to us. So I think we keep our eyes open and be critical consumers, but it doesn't mean that we write off something altogether um, as valueless because it makes a profit. And at the same time, we don't consume blindly um, because we're nostalgically attached to the idea of something. So that's really, that's kind of where I've landed in terms of reconciling the joys and the beauty and the romance of imaginary play for children when it comes into the stark reality of history and how complicated those lessons can be. So tackling that is worthwhile. And if anything, I wish more companies or American Girl would try even harder to to have maybe multiple perspectives on one historical era. I think that would be a really cool step or direction to go in. In terms of actually tackling that history, uh, did you know that the Addy character in the doll was actually the first one to have an advisory committee like of outside historians and consultants? So like Kirsten, uh, Molly, Samantha? Not, apparently not. No. That is what Felicity, the- no advisory committee. That is apparently not. I mean, apparently uh, that this is according to the American Girl wiki. So oh, interesting. Would love to have another source, but um, <laughs> like the company realized or knew that okay, if we're going to make this doll, we have to do it really thoughtfully. So with historians who actually know what they're doing and talking about. And the doll development question is really interesting because. You know, for all of her questions about how the brand is doing their work and what that actually means, Marsha Chatlin, you met her in part one of this series, was also on an advisory committee for an American Girl character. Really? Yeah. American Girl, you know, I've been a little critical of some of the narrative stuff they've done, but I kind of like it as an introduction into history. I think that the culture wars about, you know, history and all of these right-wing attempts to try to undermine the study of actual fact has made me realize the importance of historians to actually try to say, like, how are we going to meet the public halfway to understand what history is so that they can really resist these forces that politicize um, historical facts? Yeah, Marsha worked on Claudia Wells, who is a girl growing up in New York City during the Harlem Renaissance. So I was approached um, to be part of the group that, you know, commented on Claudia, and it was everyone I liked in the field, you know, incredible people like Spencer Crew and um, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham. I mean, just like outstanding historians, Shannon King, um, Keisha Blaine, among others. And so I, um, yeah, I said, sure. So Spencer's worked on two dolls? 
Yeah.、Uh, and the books, by the way, Claudia's books were written by Britt Bennett.、Mm. I know you know who Britt Bennett is, Justine. Nick, do you know who Britt Bennett is? I don't. Have you seen the book The Vanishing Half on like the bestseller <laughs> table of every bookstore in America? <laughs> yes, I have. That's Britt Bennett. Oh, wow. Wildly popular author who happened to tweet that she wanted to write an American Girl doll book. And I should do that. Yeah, right. We should all do that. And American, well, Mattel、wow. reached out to her and they said, like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they probably wouldn't respond in the same way to me.、Mm-hmm. I really love that Britt Bennett had an American Girl doll. She's this incredible fiction writer. And this is kind of where she wanted to do her craft. I mean, I think that there's something so important about people who are at the top of their game, engaging with children, engaging with the general public, of showing kind of the ways that. It's not always about doing things that are considered prestigious. It's about doing things that are accessible. And so I loved, I loved that. And I loved that they were going to do this Harlem Renaissance story. And the creative work behind creating Claudie's world was just really beautiful. I mean, the, it was so beautifully designed. And I think the depth of her story with her dad being a World War I veteran, her mother、um, you know, working for a black newspaper as an investigative journalist,、um, the fact that they are living in this multi ethnic, multicultural black world of Harlem, there was something about the elements of the story that I really trusted. And I loved being able to say, like, this is a great story. This wouldn't have happened back then. These are some ways you can tweak it. So we are always looking for、um, the historical anachronisms.、Uh, what I was honestly pleasantly surprised to learn, and I say pleasantly surprised because obviously this brand is a part of my childhood and like means、mm-hmm. something to me, and I'm still thinking about it,、um, is that the development of these characters and these dolls, it actually takes years. And lots and lots of conversation and viewpoints and expertise and do this, don't do that. That wouldn't be historically accurate. Here's what the experience would actually be like, et cetera.、Uh, here's Spencer again. I think we did a lot of learning from each other in terms of the specifics that one might know. One of the historians was a deep, deep historian of knowledge of Harlem. So he could really make sure that happened. One was a very good historian of, of African American girls. And of religion. So we, we all have these areas of expertise that we could contribute. And、um, at least I knew several of them. So they were friends and colleagues. So it was good to be in conversation with them. And I, I think what we try to do is have a health, healthy respect for each other's perspective and point of view. And to、uh, realize that all that's important for the overall story and presentation of, of, of Claudia, but also of. The family and the background of the storyline. The other element of the American Girl doll books that I feel like we need to get into,、um, like something that I think is really powerful for girls,、uh, for me and for you too, Hannah, I think, is that all these girls are really proactive in their worlds. They're th- this element of like, I'm a, I'm a girl who like doesn't quite fit the mold of what you expect, or I'm breaking the rules, or in some way.、Mm-hmm. They're living during these often tense, really touchstone eras of American history, and they're not just witnesses. They're participants and they're often really active and running around and asking questions and,、uh, for what it's worth, doing their part. Yeah, I think for all of the absolutely important questions, I think you should ask about this brand and the acknowledgement that this is not a perfect brand. <laughs> like,、yeah. It's a brand, it's making money. Good luck finding perfection there. But also, like any historian who's doing interpretation of history is also a person who is making an interpretation. So, right. 
whether or not it's a brand, it's also making a statement about like, this is how we see history. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, but I, I can I can agree with you, Justine, and honestly say that the books and the history, they stuck in my mind in part because these girls were often getting into like a little bit of trouble, like climbing a tree when they shouldn't have been or stealing a horse when they shouldn't have been or, you know, like leaving the house. Like they weren't just kids, I guess. Yeah. Um, which, you know, when you are a kid, you don't think to yourself, I'm just a kid. <laughs> like life is very serious. Yeah. There are a lot of things to think about. The weight of the world is on your shoulders as far as you're concerned. But but also it's not like I feel like the Magic Treehouse books did this, this other series where it goes back and it's like the reason that um, this series of events in history happened this way is because of what this girl did or what this this kid did. And it wasn't that it was just like this is the emotional journey that you would be going through in that time. You know what I mean? It wasn't mm-hmm. sort of magical in that sense. It was right. very real. It was very. Yeah. I mean, it was just sort of like practical and, and real. Well, I, I guess with the Claudia Dow, what struck me was important to think about, about what um, this sense of family. And how family is more than just your mother and father. Family can be a wider circle of individuals. And that that means that people can work, can and should work together collaboratively, trying to help each other through challenges and through other kind of issues. And I think as a civic lesson, that's a really important one, that we all have some of these responsibilities towards others to um, help ensure that they are safe and that they can navigate and get through moments of trouble and not to step away and say it's not like concern. In terms of what is a concern for a kid, especially a girl kid for whom these dolls were and are definitely designed, I think there's also an element of pushing maybe a different kind of girldom, (laughs) probably a pretty safe feminism, but a feminism nevertheless. Yeah, I mean, American Girl is is certainly crafting... Yes, a safe version of feminism. A lot of the people we spoke to, Justine, would have called it safe. Um, But yeah, Emily Zoslow has thought about this, the feminism part, kind of a lot. In terms of what they teach girls about feminism and about femininity and about American girlhood, there are two different things, right? From the books, I think one of the things from the historical collections specifically um, there's an element of social change that runs throughout all of the stories that um, girls do not have to be stuck in the gender gendered roles that their mothers were in so in many of the stories we see girls kind of struggling with their Mothers and mothers who have much more traditional normative ideas about what girlhood looks like. Um, and then girls kind of challenging their mothers um, and society, you know, their mothers serve as a representation of society. Um, also, girls using their voices for social change is very is a through line. And in, in many of these stories, um, in the more contemporary stories, you see girls using their voices, sometimes for more localized, like interpersonal change. But nonetheless, it's change that girls' voices are very important um, and that they should, you know, challenge themselves to speak up when they see something that is wrong in society or wrong in their local communities. Okay, one last question I want to get to here, because after all of these interviews and all of this research, I was still asking, 
is American Girl good, though? Like, is it teaching good lessons? Is it okay that it is both expensive and sometimes inaccessible and staking its claim and its interpretation of history and also that it's educational and, you know, maybe even inspirational, depending on what kind of kid you are. Uh, can you both have super pricey dolls and zillions of accessories and also be a meaningfully contributing educational company that gives kids accessible history lessons? Here's what Emily had to say. You know, when I started talking to people about my research, the first question people would ask me is like, so is American Girl a good brand or is it bad? Should I buy American Girl for my generally daughter or should I not? And I kind of began my research with a rejection of that question. Um, I think that, you know, looking at it as a binary is problematic because it's neither. I, I look at American Girl as both commodities that are sold in the capitalist consumer marketplace and therefore have an intention of profit. And also at the same time as intentionally feminist and supporting social change. And so it happens on multiple levels, right? One of the most significant is that many of the writers for the American Girl historical series, which is really the focus of my research as the historical piece, um, are established writers who are, you know, under contract by the brand for a particular story, but they don't work directly for the brand. Oh, yeah, this is an interesting piece that was totally unknown to me before we started working on this, Hannah, that the that the people they call on to inform the brand are not people of the American Girl Company, or I guess even in the case of Mattel at this point. Like, they are independent academics and historians and authors, and you can still compare that whole project to other kids' dolls and say, yeah, American Girl was different. It is different, even as the brand has changed. I also think that there are very few brands that are doing what, Amer you know, still to this day... Um, especially mass market brands that are doing what American Girl does in terms of their focus on history in the historical line. They are still making dolls that are historical. Um, but they are still hiring. I mean, what other mass market brand would hire Britt Bennett to write a children's story? Like, they're still hiring really, um, I think, fabulous writers to to create stories and even the the writers who have been working for the brand for quite a while. I mean, one of the, so, so the complaints about Barbie, right? And aside from the dream house and the consumption aspect, the complaints about Barbie are, um, you know, that she's a little bit, I mean, even though she's been able to be many different, you know, she's been able to have many different careers, including being president is that, doesn't have there's no backstory right which is okay because girls can create their own backstory but there's an emptiness I think to Barbie um, and I don't think that that's true of the American Girl historical line and and the fact that they still hire historians to do the research they still hire advisory boards to advise the historians on the research I still think that with with the historical line they're doing something that's relatively unique and and dare I say although I said I don't think good or bad but I think it is a good product of uh, the historical products then I'll add you know also when um in this issue of barbification and why I say it's you know that we should 
not totally dismiss American Girl is there's also um, anecdotally there are many women who are interested in history who are history teachers who are historians um, by you know and and scholars who became interested in history through American Girl and I think that that's also really like that's some research that's starting to be done is this kind of interest in in history through American Girl and, and I don't think that's going to end I think that that's continuing Can I just ask would either of you say that that's true of you? You're two of the most historically engaged people I've ever met and would you say part of that is due to your love of the American Girl dolls? Yeah, I think so. Um, probably not. the Again, the dolls and the stories are different. I engage with them completely differently. Mm-hmm. Um, got the books from the library, got the dolls. You know, the dolls weren't really even Felicity sh- a little bit, but w- could be anybody. Um, but that American Girl, like, I think Marsha at one point said, they took me seriously. And it's not something that like I would have consciously thought, but... Um, it was it was so good and and even all of the things around it like the American Girl magazine which was for modern girls um, the the one about the care and keeping of you which teaches you about your body mm-hmm. um, it teaches uh, which a lot of people have the story of their mom just like leaving it on their bed and <laughs> uh, you know it teaches you how to put in a tampon and stuff which when you're young um, can feel really intimidating <laughs> like really scary <laughs> really <Yeah>. scary <laughs> some people have different experiences it was intimidating to me um, <laughs> but there are a couple other books like this like the Dear America series uh, the diaries um, they're these uh, fictional diaries of girls you know like crossing the plains or whatever um, but I would say yeah like it mm-hmm. what do you think Hannah yeah I mean I think it's <laughs> I was probably a, a little bit destined to be interested yeah. in history. <laughs> That's probably true um, too for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's really not lost on me that my favorite toys were somehow taking my interest in the world seriously. Like like Marcia said, like you said, Justine. Um, I was the kind of kid who not only did not like pink and frills, but like was proud of them. Yeah, right? I'm not like other girls, which is its own problematic. Oh my god, story it's such a its problem. <laughs> and like to reveal the depth of my snobbery. I would deem things frivolous, right? Like, I don't engage with that, which is also obviously nonsense because I had the Samantha doll. That was my first doll. Like, there's frivolity there. Um, That's complicated. But my point is that American Girl um, meant to me, and I. this is obviously in retrospect, but I think this is true, both amazing toys, (laughs) incredible toys that felt like they were substantial um, and also learning. I was learning about times when life was hard for girls and they made it work and then I was learning actual facts about American history and I gotta bring this back to Marsha Justine because having that conversation with her about that aspect just made me feel like oh yeah you're you're on our level. She's like, on the level. Yeah. I think the original American Girl Girl dolls were for like super nerdy girls like me. I do think that there was a level of seriousness in the American girl world that was not necessarily appealing to every girl, but to the girls that it appealed to, you felt very seen. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, feeling seen by an educational toy company, uh, maybe that's something. You don't know what it would have been like without it, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. 
And I, I like think about the Cabbage Patch or Barbie. Um, I never wanted to play mom. Like I, I was like, I, I guess I, it's, it's hard to imagine, um, not having had that. And I feel really sad thinking about <laughs> what if, what if you didn't, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, probably as, as messed up as the world is, like there's in some ways it's like the best time to have grown up in the history of the Western world <laughs> to be a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, cause, like just to have multiple ways of being presented to you. Um, we talked a lot about the tomboy element, but I think that they were different enough. Like it's not just um, the counterpart like oh she's the she's the dirty tomboy one she's not like other girls it's like they they are um they contain multitudes all of these characters they were real people it felt like Mm -hmm. what's interesting to me is that i'm like just hearing these stories from both of you i'm really grateful these books were written and i can't help but wonder (laughs) couldn't help but wonder couldn't help but wonder so i can't even get that quote right uh would would you two have had such engagement with the books had the dolls not existed? Uh, and would Greater America have just read these books and loved them if it weren't for this beautiful toy that came with it? It feels like it feels like the toy is almost like an an invitation into the book. It's really a lot of world building, yeah. that they did, which I think is really cool. You know, I mean, I feel like it's it's in the tradition of. Um, of people who have taken women seriously over the years, like Nora Ephron or like Jane Austen or, you know, like people over, over the ages. And I recently heard something about like rom-coms were one of the first places where women were actual characters and not just a foil for other people. Mm -hmm. And it feels like this is like, it's not a rom-com, but like this is in that tradition of like, let's, let's write a real person here. Mm -hmm. Um, Jane Austen did it too. There are, uh, you have to be indebted to all these people. <laughs> I totally sense agree. of self. I always think about kids set in American history stories and what I actually engaged in outside of American Girl, and I think there was often throughout a lot of my consumption of like kids in history, just my eyes like turning to stars when I actually encountered girl characters. Because come on, right? This is and- why my sister had all these books that were called like. Sarah or Elizabeth <laughs> and there was a woman on the cover and I never knew what they were about and I was like oh well, how's uh, Beatrice going shut up <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my childhood get out of here I used to play um, with Cupid dolls Cupid <laughs> like the mayonnaise mayonnaise was named after the doll yeah what yeah, we, oh, yeah. we both know that <laughs> <laughs> alright <laughs> but not me <laughs> There are probably thousands of things we could say about American Girl. What it is, what it does, what it meant, what it means, what it looks like now. And so this was an episode about this brand that is also a learning tool and how it is both complicated and worth taking seriously. But there is other stuff. There's fun stuff and there's American Girl today and there I've I've got more accessories in this backpack here. Um, If you want to hear about that, we've got you covered. We are going to release a bonus episode in addition to this episode. You can look for that on our feed.
That does it for this episode of Civics 101. It was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with help from Justine Paradise and Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Brandon Moeller, Razor, Particle House, J.F. Gloss, Ryan James Carr, Peerless, Caro B and Alleviate, OTE, John Runefeld, Daniel Friedel, Arc de Soleil, Mark Torch, Meter, Era, and Chris Zabriskie. You can get more info about this episode, transcripts, lesson plans, and every episode we have ever made at our website, civics101podcast.org. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. 